1: Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I am your host, your civics teacher, and your neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams, and I am delighted that you made it to class this morning. If you're listening and you live in the states of New Jersey, Virginia, Michigan, Vermont, Illinois, Minnesota, South Dakota, and Wyoming, early voting has already begun in your state and you do not have to wait until election day to vote. Remember, we are in an election season and as long as you are vote ready, you can go on and cast your vote now. To get vote ready, you need to verify your registration, educate yourself about what's on your ballot, and make your plan to vote. Now, as we discussed last week, there is a lot on your ballot other than the presidential contest. And on today's show, we're talking to some of the Black women who may be on your ballot if you live in their particular state. There is a historic number of Black women running for Congress. And this morning, we're going to talk to one of them, the state senator from the 31st District of Arkansas and current candidate for Arkansas's 2nd Congressional District, Joyce Elliott. She's joining us first for a great conversation. I was delighted to speak with her. And of course, I began by asking Joyce Elliott, what was your
2: first civic action? I was really wrapped up in the presidential election during that time. And so uh, I I tried to get some of my my classmates to come along with me in getting the teacher to change the subject matter for the day so we could discuss uh, the, the election itself. And so I had to go around, you know, I was, if that was far enough back, you couldn't just do a text on the phone and you couldn't just crowd. you know, uh, source people. And so I had to stand as we were getting off the bus, I stood by the bus and said, come over here, I wanna talk to you about something. And it it didn't turn out well because they were not interested, but for me, that was a a part of what I thought we ought to be doing only because I was interested. So that extended itself into the classroom when I was not successful at that getting my students. They kind of said, yeah, and a couple of them said they would. So I took that into the classroom where I, I raised my hand and suggested to the teacher, Who I remember very well was about to teach us long long uh, division, and I said, "Since we already know long division, could we just have this discussion about the Kennedy-Nixon debate?" And she said, "No." And I did it again, and she said, uh, "You know," uh, she sent me to the principal's office. So I suffered because of my first action. She sent me to the principal's office with a note, and I was scared to death because he was well known as being a mean person. But the note actually said, I didn't know this until I got there. He read it out loud to me. Uh, It was, by the way, my teacher was the principal's wife. And he said, he read the note, please talk to this child about politics. (laughs) And and rather than getting scolded for the rest of the class, that's what we did. So I was really inspired at the end of it. So (laughs) please talk to this child. She didn't even say student (laughs) about politics. And he did. And it was wonderful.
1: Yeah. Wow. That is an amazing (laughs) story. What's interesting is that for a lot of people, their first civic action is usually tied to some form of being in school, education, or resources for education, or fighting against the teacher in very small ways and for yourself as an educator i mean that's your background right as a, and i have love in my heart for high school teachers my husband is in the other room right now teaching classes because he's a high school teacher um but knowing that fact that majority of the people we talk to about their first civic action is tied to an education
2: setting does that surprise you um, it, it does not, because I think that's one of the magic things about public schools in particular, because when we tend to have a, uh, well, it needs to be better, but we tend to have kind of a representative um, uh, population of people in our country, in our public schools when we have done it well. And any time you have particularly a representative group of folks, you tend to have issues come up that you need to solve in some way. And if it's, if it's a school that doesn't have a big mosaic, Students tend to know more about more than people give them credit for knowing about the things that need to be changed in their schools. So I was the, I was the, uh, for years, I was the sponsor of student council. So in, in my school. So I saw a lot of that happen because that's the first opportunity. That was one of the reasons we had public schools, by the way. It was supposed to be where students learn how to exercise their democracy and learn how to live and work among other people so that's not surprising to me as a teacher.
1: (laughs) Well let's stick on this theme of education since we're here because I don't know that we know the full extent to how COVID has impacted our children's education and its impact on our teachers and administrators and others. What are you thinking about in this moment of how covid and our response to this has Mm -hmm. impacted this generation of children in public schools
2: yeah I, i i am this is something that i have thought a lot about because early on it was pretty clear to me especially with my background that we had the potential of having a lost year and we still do and a lost year really means something in arkansas because in arkansas central high school uh, when when the, the governor decided to close the schools, you know, we had we had a, a, a pandemic of racism. I guess you might say then to close the schools rather than have kids come. So we've referred to it as a lost year. And I just kind of that feeling right now. But early on, uh, when I could see and probably had elected with my background that we really need to think about things differently and not try to act if things were OK. You know, I released what I call Healing Arkansas. And a part of that plan was about school readiness funding, because it was clear if we were gonna be going back to school uh, at all, there were things we need to do to think more carefully about, you know, how we would protect students and teachers and everybody else who's working in the schools, how we need to rethink our scheduling. And we've done a a lot of going back to school without thinking about the infrastructure that we have right now in our school. is not set up for a pandemic. And in a lot of ways, we've tried to force that. And I really worry about what it's done to our kids, the ability to, academically, that's an obvious one, but the ability for kids to grow and form uh, social relationships, learn how to be a part of a group, and to see school as something that can be fun. I'm really concerned about um, those kids in in pre-K and early elementary not being able to, to, to experience school as a fun thing, uh, because a lot of it really should be. I, the thing that's taken away so much of that is the overemphasis on testing. But now that's been replaced and or added to with this. And so it's such an artificial situation. And uh, we don't have the infrastructure in our schools. I'm talking about the, like the bandwidth, uh, the internet that so many uh, schools need to have and that so many uh, parents need to have at home. And so it has really created a very uneven response because it, you know it's highlighted some of the unevenness that was there in the first place. And I think we're in a position where we have to stop thinking about school as something that has to magically start in August or September and magically end in May or June because we need to, Think about um, the way we do things in terms of a target, like when we reach this in the community, think about targets rather than a date because uh, the uh, pandemic is not going to cooperate with us just because we say uh, September 24th is the date we will do whatever. What I think we have done that really bothers me is we have placed so much on the schools, kids and parents that we haven't fixed in the community. Because our community has um, in some cases refused or was has been unable to in the present climate to make things right in the community itself but we push the same people into the schools and we say now you make it right and it's it's a pattern of asking our schools to deal with things that we do not deal with you know in people's lives and you know one big example of that is I think it's a proper thing so kids do go to school hungry that we expect the schools to be sure they're fed. And we should, if they're coming, they're hungry. But the question we ought to be asking is, why are they hungry in the first place? And in this case, you know, we get, well, we'll just have the schools do that. Well, kids don't have access to health care uh, many times just because of transportation or whatever. Well, we will just do it in the schools, that's fine. But the question is, why don't they have it in the first place? So I see us following that same pattern. We have not made things right with COVID-19 in the community. So guess what? <laughs> we'll just do it in the schools. And I think it's having, a, 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 I'm afraid it's going to have a very deleterious effect, a negative effect on our kids in particular. And the last thing I'll say about this is we're losing some of our very good teachers because they're choosing to retire rather than, you know, have their health in jeopardy. And that's
1: too bad. Given your, as you mentioned, your uh, background in education, and now having been in state in the state legislature, now what? Eleven years?
2: Yeah, I, actually, it's eighteen years old. To, I'm moving on up toward twenty. <laughs> um, I, um, I was I, I've been in the Senate for eleven years, but I but I, then I had those years in the House.
1: So, so you, uh, more than anyone, would understand. Always <clears throat> tell people that the biggest. Uh, part of state budgets are usually education and healthcare, uh-huh. and given how states administer majority of education when you go down to the local level, and taking that knowledge now to Congress, how do you see the federal government's role or Congress' role mm-hmm. in supporting states in administering education?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I one of the things that's a, that's a, a part of my issues that is I think. Um, education should be world-class education. Ed, educa- world-class education should be a national priority. Uh, and because, as you, as you rightly said, it, it is within the purview of the states, the education role. But I think um, every state should be aided by, uh, from the national level, in creating world-class schools. Uh, when I grew up, uh, you know, my school was okay, but it was not world-class but that was not as crucial as it is now. Because when I grew up, I, you know, I started out in a school that was um, a, a segregated school, an all black school. And then of course I went to a school, there were about my family, six, six other families who integrated the school and it was a very uneven, it was a very uneven type of, uh, of education in that I was really better off at the all black school. And that surprises people because I had the best of teachers because they couldn't go anyplace else and our curriculum was stronger and so forth. But neither one of those uh, would be considered a world-class school, you know, um, these days. And I became a teacher because I wanted every child, no matter who they were, even though I was not treated the way I thought I should be treated at the school that was the integrated school. um, That was so much a part of why I became a teacher because I wanted to be that teacher every kid uh, needed to have. It was, uh, that inspired me. And so when I became a teacher, I, want, I saw, I, I've always studied education, always looked at education across the world since about my fifth year of teaching, because if, as we tell kids, you've got to be able to compete globally. It's unfair and, you know, and it's hypocritical to say, you need to be comp- uh, able to com- uh, compete globally if we are not creating schools that are globally competitive. So it all cannot be done by the state. But we need to work the national from the national level, we should work with states not to take over. But when, say, uh, Arkansas decides and the states have to decide, I want to be a world class state uh, when it comes to education. And then work with me as your as your person representing you in Congress. And I hope to be on the Education Committee as 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 a teacher, we ought to have funds set aside and resources set aside so that when Arkansas says in order for me for us to have a world-class education here is how we can help you because what we're doing right now most constitutions and state constitutions say you have to meet adequacy Uh, that's not enough these days and we started out uh once like a lot of southern states we had a lawsuit filed against us about the unevenness of the funding and reaching adequacy uh, and so, we did a lot to improve education in Arkansas in the early 2000s into the mid-2000s. Um, but one thing we did that we did not have to do because it made sense in trying to uh, up that education level, um, I was happy to be a part of helping to create a pre-K program that was first in the nation uh, after we invested in it and thought about it. it was first in the nation pre-K program. We didn't have to do that by the Constitution. But it didn't make sense to start investing all of this money if you were not getting kids ready for being in school and when they got there so that you could grow from there. Uh, and I want to be fair to say, you know, I'm not suggesting we are still first in the nation, but we were for several years. But because, like in a lot of places, we began to cut back on the, on the funding, and um, I want us to get back to that, to that space. But I think it's collaboration that we have to have. That is my big superpower. I know how to collaborate, even with people that uh, it appears I have nothing in common with. And sometimes that's the same relationship between the states and the uh, state government and federal government. They want to fight rather than collaborate. So uh, I, I hope that's that's the big thing I want for us. We'll be right back.
1: School boy and
0: schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I will let you know.
1: Welcome back to Sunday Civics. It's your girl, Eljoy Joy Williams. So let's switch gears a a minute because your team sent me this this morning that a recent poll has you up two points ahead of the Republican incumbent and your lead actually grows when you are introduced to voters, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And so, you know, you may have a, a, well, you do have a base of folks that you have represented for some time and helping to grow that to the rest of the congressional district. Talk to us a bit about how you are connecting with Arkansas voters to pull off that lead.
2: Well, for people to understand, our our district is uh, it's Little Rock and the surrounding uh, six other counties and suburbs, and we were so um, humbled uh, to uh, to have the support that we have. And we got that poll yesterday. We had a poll prior to then that put us neck and neck, and then we got another a national poll yesterday that uh, put me two points ahead. And then you're right when people get to know me. A lot of people just kind of know of me. Many people do know me. When they get to know what I'm about, then of course, you know, it, it, the, um, the unifying message that I have and know that I have always worked across the aisles to get things done as opposed to my opponent, you know, who's trying to celebrate, position me another way. And so he's just been stoked in division. And one of the things that we have done, no matter how much he does that, we keep trying to t- talk to people about coming together. For example, we've gotten out and uh, we've gotten out and campaigned uh, prior to the pandemic, luckily, and all seven of those counties to let people know, uh, those especially in the rural areas, they tend to think uh, that I am, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a city girl, you know, people grew up in the city. But what so many times what uh, uh, my opponent likes to do and, and others as well, they try to paint the picture, you know, she's this, this person who's just a city slicker, blah, blah, blah. Well, it so happens I grew up in a town of 152 people. My class that we referred to at the very beginning, my high school graduation class, literally had nine people in it. Nine. That doesn't sound much like a city slicker to me. Yeah, it's not working. And so the other thing, we're, the, the big thing we're doing now during this pandemic, we we are going back out to these counties during the pandemic and campaigning, but we're doing it safely by doing something we call drive-in rallies. We had the first one last Saturday. Um, and some people who've been around for a while know that we just call trucks, pickup trucks. And um, when generally, when you go into these little places, you would speak from the stump and all that. But the pickup truck is the new stage or it's the new uh, stump. And people drive them in get a large area. And the way they, you know, so many times, you know, you still applaud and all this kind of stuff. And now, what you do? People honk and uh, you know a hoot or whatever they do and holler. It's a lot of fun, and it's a good way to connect with people. So we just have to think of better, you know, different and better ways of doing things. You know, so it's it's turned out to be not as onerous as I thought. Although I do I do miss you know not having that human touch. But yeah, we're find that.
1: Yeah. yeah, we talk about the impact that COVID has had, obviously, on health care, yeah. obviously has had on education,
2: yeah.
1: the impact that it is going to have on our actual social skills
2: is <laughs> a, a whole nother conversation and I'm so afraid when somebody gives me the go I'm just going to start hugging strangers So, I'm hugging strangers. <laughs> oh, my gosh yes so
1: I want to talk one more policy aspect if if you will mm-hmm. and that's on infrastructure which seems to be a important point for you I'm always raising my fist you know for the for the last 10 years about infrastructure in the United States whole Sale, that everything is crumbling <laughs> yeah, yeah. why is no one paying attention yeah. to this you can't drive down a street without like a pothole when's the last time any like local towns and cities have like completely rebuilt school buildings it's all falling apart the bridges are going what yeah. is happening
2: <laughs> it's almost as if i mean i so feel you on that it's just so funny because just yesterday we were driving you know out somewhere to do a a campaign shoot and we were driving down the interstate and uh, every, uh, most folks in my campaign are, are young people, which I love and I'm trying to be because I've got all the age and you know it's, it's different ages, but people are young because I want them to learn all this stuff. So. so we were driving down the interstate and so here I go tiki buying, you know. Listen, every. sometimes I get on the interstate and I just marvel at how we take it so for granted because in the 50s when Eisenhower came back from the war, he decided that he'd been in, he'd been in Europe They had interstates, they had great roads. We're gonna do that here in America. Suppose today somebody said, Hey, I have an idea. We're gonna build, you know, interstates across our country so we can drive easily from here to here. The way we are now, when we seem to be so afraid if we invest in something that's gonna help everybody, we might actually help somebody. I said, you know, their deal was these this generation took it up and they built the friggin' interstate. They built it. our duty was to expand on if we wish to, but at least to maintain it. And we're, we're falling down on that because we are, we don't pay attention to in- infrastructure until it does start to fall apart. And it is a big thing for me because, you know, I love national parks, which is a part of that infrastructure that people invested in. So I, I with the pandemic, um, there are some things that there are, we can use that to rebuild our people and rebuild our, our country. But let me give you one other good example. Let me give you a good example of how we had to work vote only here in Arkansas. That our opponent, this is one of the reasons we can't get things done. Our opponent is trying to use against me. So our 911 uh, infrastructure was wholly inadequate. You call, you might get somebody, and somebody might say, let me put you on hold. And so we had to pass uh, a tax that you used to get when people had all landlines. To make sure we show up that that infrastructure for 911, and so my opponents tried to make that a negative thing, which of course it has not resonated. But something that small we don't want to pay for. Um, it Turns out everybody else did, he did not. So when it gets close to the roads, when it comes to the interstate, uh, the uh, internet connections, I mean all the things that we need for everyday quality of quality of life, we are just overlooking. Uh, so. When we get out of this pandemic or as we're emerging from it, I think if Congress is smart and who the next president is, we will do what we've been talking about for the longest time. We will begin to build our roads, our highways and bridges, and making sure we are building connective infrastructure for the internet. And that is going to help people come back, if they will have jobs, but we're also gonna to need to create jobs so that people can grow where they are. And that does mean for small businesses in particular, it means having a very robust internet se- um, a sector so that if you wanted to remain where you are and sell your goods across the country, you have to have great infrastructure with the internet and the broadband width to do it. And if, if we're just gonna wait till everything crumbles. We will do a bridge at a time, maybe or we will fix a pothole at a time, maybe. And so, but the other side of that, the government should do what it should do, but a lot of people don't do it because we don't support that person and or require that person to vote. Yeah, it's gonna cost money, but people invested so we can have traffic jams. That's what I always I invested in all those roads. And we need to, in and, and, and some ways, I think more thoughtfully about not just roads, but you know, um, I, I think light rail is really important in cities. I think uh, ch- uh, trains are really important across the country, even in the South where we tend not to use trains very much. We should be doing that, especially from a hub out into suburbia rather than having all the cars you know, on the road all the time. And the hardest part about that is to get people, like right now, if we started building that train uh, uh, st- infrastructure I probably would never live to see it, to see the, you know, see the fruition of it. But that is fine because it is your responsibility to start things for the future generations that you are not going to enjoy. And that's where a lot of people get hung up like, what's in it for me? No, it, it's about, think about, I always say think about things the way the Native Americans do, um, you know, and uh, what about seven generations? Start to conduct yourself that your policies be guided when something is that big about um, that is going to last for seven generations. And that would give you a perspective right away that you are not the center of seven generations. So you have to be, have to do this for somebody else. Yeah.
1: That's really, really important and a good perspective to think about that. If you are thinking about building something long lasting, that while The policy, the infrastructure, or different things that you are introducing or working on don't have to be just what's at the current moment. And the example of that is in climate change. We know in in a climate change conversation that there are things that we can do right now that would, yes, have an effect right now, but actually go towards that long-term goal that future generations that will breathe cleaner air. (laughs)
2: that's exactly right because if you don't think about it that way you'll start things will seem to look so big why do it because because you're you know because you're doing it for the big reason call that called the future and um i I just think we've gotten into uh do the follow the silver bullets let's just get this first look it's like when we talk about education and we talk about education reform i mean all reform does is you're going to do this one little thing at a time that's not connected to anything else um, and you know I I just remember when when I was so inspired I saw this big thing happen right in front of my eyes because we had a politician who was trying to do noble things my my uh, my parents and grandparents and everybody were afraid about voting uh, you know in Arkansas and they always whispered about something called poll tax and I didn't know what that was but I, I could feel the fear in them, uh, but when uh, JFK was running for office, John F. Kennedy was running for office. Um, to make a long story short, I just saw them begin to just blossom for whatever reason, and began to stand up straight and talk out loudly. I will just never forget how the posture, literally, the posture changed, and 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 the voices changed because they thought somebody was had studied the past enough or knew enough about the past to think big about the future that might be more inclusive and and so you can inspire people about things that seem totally impossible to do by you know getting up and doing it and in this case being noble about politics and working for this country to be about all of america because one of the reasons we have a hard time getting people to believe in attacks Or anything else that's going to help all of us is that we need to be to do the work of unity which is something that is a part of what i always want to do do the work of unity so that when you come up with the big things or whatever you want to do you shouldn't be starting from scratch of trying to persuade everybody that we should care about each other we should care from the beginning and then we're in a position to talk about these big things and that's what you know that's when i decided to you know i don't know what they call this I didn't know the word politics because I was too young, but it was a year before I went into the fourth grade though. Uh, when I, um, but I wanna do this. I guess this, you know, whether it was good, bad or ugly, I saw that make a difference in people's lives. And so public service has just been the through line of who, that's just what I've been. And I'm running against a person, French Hill, who's been always been about self-service. He is absolutely Wall Street's wall street's favorite um, congressperson and i get it um he does a great job for them but these are not the people who need the help and i i grew up knowing those people and i still hear them see them and feel them and that's who i'm going to work for when i get to congress
1: well Thank you so very much for taking the opportunity to speak with us. If you want to learn more about Joyce Elliott, her campaign, her policy positions, and how you can support, you can go to JoyceElliott.com. Thank you so very much for taking the time.
2: Oh, thank you so much. I enjoyed this conversation and I look forward to uh, doing more work and coming back and talking with you again. So so take good care. We'll be right back.
1: Welcome back to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. Your civics teacher is back with you. And I have, I have more teachers, lots of teachers to bring to the front of the class. I, don't, I think this may be the first time I've had more than like two teachers on the show at the same time. I actually have four, four black women who are on the ballot. There are more things on the ballot than Trump this come November. And if you happen to live in the Los Angeles Community College District, you have a whole slate of Black women to choose from. They are the Justice for LACCD and I have each and every one of them on Sunday Civics with me this morning to talk about their candidacy and about what they are trying to do. I'm going to let each and every one of them in introduce themselves first, and then we're going to have a conversation about just what the LA Community College District does, what it's responsible for, and also why they decided to step out and run. So first, I'm going to start with Sylvia Brooks Griffin.
3: Hi, good morning, good morning. My name is Sylvia Brooks Griffin. I am running for SEAT on the Los Angeles Community College District. I am running because I believe in service. This is the first time I've ever run for any political office, but I feel like now is the time where we all have to step up and do more.
0: I'm Raquel Watts and I'm running for the Los Angeles Community uh, School District. Seat number seven. And uh, I am running because I believe in representation. I think that with all that's going on in the world today, we need to make sure that our students can see themselves in the leadership and the administration so that they can trust that their best interests are being supported.
4: Hello, I am Dr. Nishay James Gray, and I am running for LACCD trustee board seat number five. And I am running because I believe in the power of education, education is so important. I am a former LACCD student, as well as all of my children have gone to LACCD. I'm also running because uh, school policing is a big issue in America, and LACCD has um, a huge, huge, huge contract with the Sheriff's Department, and I think that they have an the opportunity
1: to make some changes. We're definitely going to have a conversation about that. And then lastly, we have Sharnae Tunson.
5: Hi, everyone. My name is Sharnae Tunson, and I am running for the Los Angeles Community College District Trusting Board Seat Number One. And I am a lifelong educator, and I believe that our students need more support across the district so that we can recruit specifically our students of color and that we can retain our students of color so that they can be successful with their academic program and walk away in two years with their associate of arts degree or or program certification and then be ready for the next phase of their lives.
1: Thank you so very much to each and every one of you for joining me this morning. Let's start with some basics. What is LACCD actually? (laughs)
3: LACCD is the Los Angeles Community College District. And it's made up of nine different community colleges across Los Angeles County. It serves 250,000 students. It is the largest community college district in the nation. It's further down on the ballot. So a lot of people don't know about the board of trustees that oversees the district. And I just wanna raise awareness about it and really allow people to learn more about LACCD learn what the board does so that they can make an informed decision about this particular race. We want you to know who's running. We want you to know why. And we want you to understand that it's important. Even if it's further down in the ballot, it's super, super important. So largest community college district, 250,000 students. It's been around for 77 years. It serves all of
1: Los Angeles County and it's it's, um, very, very diverse. In in doing my research, majority... Um, of the student population as sylvia was mentioning is extremely diverse primarily three times as many latino students four times as many african-american students that's a pretty diverse student population and as all of you have mentioned issue of making sure you are serving that population what do you think is missing right now from the service to those students
5: I think the number one thing that's missing from the service to the students is the cultural connection. Like you mentioned, the majority of the students are Latino and African American. However, the members of the board do not reflect that. At the present time, there are no African Americans at all serving on the board. And there's only one female. which happens to be a white female. And so it's, it's, we know as educators that there needs to be a form of connection between the educators in the building and the students in the seats or virtually as we are now, and and there's a huge disconnect right there. Students of color already come to the table with an extra set of challenges before them, and we want to make sure that the individuals who are making the decisions to support those students not only have that background knowledge, but also have the ability to connect with the students and the constituents in which they serve.
1: That's, that's really, as we're talking about up and down the ballot, right, of changing who is making decisions, particularly as it pertains to education, it um, pertains to our finances— and one of the things that shocked me as you, as I think each of you have talked about this before, is about this contract that the LA, um, LACCD has with the sheriff's department. Like, and so I'm imagining that they have this contract because they provide the, or uh, provide the security services on the campuses. Yes, yes, they
4: do. They provide 24-hour security service on the campuses to the tune of $24 million a year. East L.A. College, which is the largest of all of the campuses, has 60,000 students. And in 2018, there was eight crimes on the campus. Eight crimes. Wait,
1: eight cats In the whole year? The whole year. There was eight crimes.
4: Keep in mind, they do cover nine campuses. However, but if you're talking 60 million students and eight crimes, it just doesn't. It's not relative. It doesn't add up. You know, we're talking about civics here, but I mean, you (laughs) do your math, the numbers just, they don't add up. Okay. Um, One of the things that I am proposing is that we divest. We take away some of the money from that contract and we put it to services that are needed. 65% of the students are hungry. This has been reported they're hungry, they have food insecurity. That means they wake up and go to bed hungry. I'm suggesting that we take some of that money and create a free and reduced breakfast and lunch program similar to what we have at the K through 12, okay? Something very simple. So, you know, when the naysayers say, oh no, we don't have money for that. Oh, we could take it from right here. You know, that's simple. In addition to that, there's other things that they can do with the funds. We have a housing issue. 19% of the students are homeless. It's a huge issue. And then they've gotten all this bond money. Um, That's a whole other topic, you know, to build and, you know, pretty up the schools. But they've misappropriated a lot of those funds, you know. Um, And none of those funds were allocated to any type of housing for the students.
3: And it's so important to remember um, that because of the COVID crisis, all of the issues that our students are facing are even worse now. Their food insecurity they're even more food insecure now than they were before before this pandemic there there's even more housing insecurity because of the pandemic and we really need to look at that um as we address the issues of food insecurity and housing insecurity and homelessness among among the student population how do you learn when you're when you're hungry and you don't know where you're going to be sleeping tonight
1: Yeah. Raquel, I want to bring you back into the conversation because we're talking about how to divest from criminalization contracts. What are some of the other things that you believe yourself and the women that you're running with bring to the table in terms of changing the priorities and changing who's in charge as trustees in this district?
0: Well, I think the, the main thing we want to focus in on is the fact that we as African-American women are representing what is actually, even though uh, a large percentage of the students are uh, people of color, only less than 9% are African-American. And that is concerning to us as, as, as uh, black women. Um, of course, we're concerned with all the students, but we, we definitely want to focus in on why that number is so low and what we can do to encourage, recruit, and retain African-Americans so that they could finish the program and get their degrees and, and, and get their trades. Um, interesting enough, Uh, 50% of the students are over 25 years old and a third are over 35 years old. So we're talking about people who are trying to find themselves, find their life, Find their career path, and they need to right away. some of them have families, some of them are already uh, in a point where they have to be able to provide for themselves. so we need to make sure that there is an avenue for uh, for not only for the students to understand what the colleges have to offer because i 'm not sure if you're aware but LACCD offers the first two years of of college for free if this is your first time attending college. So a lot of these things and resources the students don't know about because of maybe marketing. Maybe it's the fact that, um, you know, they don't they're not being retained or, or being marketed from their high schools. They're not finding a pathway to universities. They're not realizing that they can finish because they'll have support and they won't have to deal with food and housing insecurities. So all those things we have to kind of maintain so that we can support the student to graduation.
1: So hindsight being 2020, I went to a private college. I wish somebody would have said something to me about not having this student loan debt and doing a community college <laughs> for two years. And yes. then I was like, look, I'm not yes. trying to go to space and I'm not trying to, like I wasn't trying to, I don't yes. need a T degree. I wish there was more of a conversation about the options that exist, that I don't have to go into debt for a quality education. And, and instead I can do two years of community college or I can mm-hmm. do, you know, this trade or do anything. And it actually lead to employment. It actually lead to a greater balance of life. And of course, not no student loan debt.
3: Yes. yes.
1: Absolutely. And <laughs> yes. the
5: program that Raquel uh, referred to, the, the Los Angeles College Promise, is a fantastic program. <clears throat> but one of the things that I am advocating for is that there is, there's some restructuring or there's some grace and mercy with this program because, because of COVID, there are a lot of students who are part of that first time going to college program that have had to take a step back, Um, whether it's due to illness, whether it's to take care of family, whether it's to get a full-time job to support their family. And Mm -hmm. so now they are technically not eligible for that program. So we also need to look at that program in addition to marketing it, but we need to look at it and see how can we use it to support the retention of our students that are currently enrolled or were once recently enrolled Um, There And you're right, you know, right now with the the Cal States and most likely the UCs announcing that they're not even going to open face-to-face school across the state of California until next uh, fall, more students and parents may make the decision that, well, maybe community college is going to be the way to go because it doesn't make sense to pay that larger tuition if in essence you're going to be working from home anyway. So community college right now, has the opportunity to be the saving grace it has the opportunity to be the new face of higher education and i think that it's important that we have a board that not only brings um a vision a new vision to the community college in higher education but also you know new voices we come from different walks of life and yes we're all educators because right now we know we've been educating people these past couple months just on what community college is. Uh, I think we're we've become students of, you know, being in politics, being a woman in politics, being an African American woman in politics. And so um, it's important that there's freshness, there's innovation, there's out of the box thinking, and there's representation Representation. in the board moving
3: forward. We keep talking about the board. So I want to make sure that it's clear LACCD is governed by a board of trustees and it's seven members on the board. Each one of us is running for one of the seats that are up for election this cycle. The seats are one, three, five, and seven. And then the next cycle, two years from now, the even number of seats will be up for election. So this isn't, this isn't just this year for us. We're, we're trying to make change long-term change over time too
1: let's talk politics (laughs) i imagine that there are people probably either running for election re-election or running for those seats how has the campaigning been and what support have you all received but also what obstacles are you facing
4: oh my god it's so political it's so (laughs) political i didn't realize that it would be this political in terms of obstacles you know, as Black women, we are the least likely for people to believe in. We're the least likely for people to get behind. We're the least likely to get funding, even though when we get in there, we're the most likely to get the job done, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, but getting, getting funding, especially during this time, fundraising has really been an, a huge obstacle for us.
3: But the, but the goal for us is to be funded by the community. We're not looking for big interest money. We're not looking for money from special interest groups. Our incumbents are fully funded from special interest groups, but we don't want to be beholden to anyone. Except Wait, but group.
1: when you say special interest groups, when you're talking about the board of trustees of a community college, what does in- interest groups look like well, listen, for the board of trustees? It's the budget for LACCD
3: is over 5 billion dollars.
1: Wait, girl, did you say a know. B?
3: Yes, I yeah. did. It five billion. <laughs> billion. Dollars. Capital so be. billion. Over three yeah. billion of those funds are from bond measures um, from past elections to fund capital improvements at these nine um, campuses. So five billion dollars makes it very attractive to people with special interests. I
5: And I, I was just going to add, um, it's very like... I'm on a fence because being an educator, I want to support the educators. Um, And right now, the largest supporter of our incumbents are the teachers, the teachers union for the Los Angeles Community College District. And on average, about 80% of the budget goes towards teacher salaries and benefits. So when we talk about a union that has pledged a million dollars to support um, our incumbents, who have been on the board for many years and have not done very much to improve the district there's quite a few uh, concerns and challenges around some some questionable decisions the board has made and the decision was made to to back these incumbents even well before the filing deadline for others throwing their their name throwing their hats in the arena came to be so they didn't it's not like they went on an exploratory tour to decide who they wanted to support, that was going to be in the best interest of the students.
1: Yeah. So just to add context to that, so one would further ask the question, well, then if the teachers union for the teachers and the administrators, I'm sure there's a, a union for the administrators and others as well, Is does that mean that they... Uh, also have the support of the rank and file of those members and then where do the students voices lay in this conversation
4: and Sam, i'm glad you brought that up because that's the mm-hmm. big concern for me i am pro-union don't get me wrong i'm yeah. pro-union i belong mm-hmm. to screen actors guild my first job i was communication workers of america so i'm pro-union and i think the union definitely has a place in our society um but however when you you know, I have a situation where, um, for example, I went to an interview um, at one of the community colleges and in the interview, the panel, there was a few administrators and then the rest were union members. So union members have a large role and say in how things are governed. So there's a shared governing process in LACCD. And when you look at each campus has a say in how things are governed as a whole. And when you look at the representatives on those governing boards, it's administrators, faculty, and union members. Which the majority of it is union members. There's no student voices at all. There's no students on the board. They have one student that comes from all nine campuses, um, kind of as a silent, you know, uh, member of the board. He has Does no really making any decisions. He has no voice. No nothing. Um, I believe that each campus should have a member on the board because every campus is so different. Um, Southwest campus, which is predominantly black, is very different than Pierce College, which has um, a different population, Um, mostly um, influential, um, higher income, I should say higher income bracket families. So it's totally different. So I think that every uh, campus should have a student representative on the board on both the governing and on the trustee board.
0: That has a vote.
3: Yes. yes. That seems serious. basic. No, yeah. it seems basic, even though it seems like the, the largest stakeholder in the community college district, the, which are the students, the students are the largest stakeholder. They should have a voice, but they, but they don't. And that's part of what we want to do. We want to we advocate for that voice for those students.
0: And one of the for things the- that solidified Uh, for me, and I'm sure for um, uh, the other candidates, uh, is that we heard from a student at a town hall meeting. We happen to have a bird's eye view of the interaction between the student and uh, some of the union people. And it was just appalling to see that his voice was being submerged by their opinions uh, of him. And and they almost, almost as if they were antagonizing him because of the fact that, you know, he, would, he had certain beliefs or he had certain thoughts about how things should be run. Uh, and he's the student. He is the purpose. He's the reason why there's even a board in existence. So it was just interesting to see that the care, the heart of the, uh, the purpose of the organization and the heart of the organization has been lost. By the, by the fact that there's so much money out there that needs to be dispersed and, and needs to be um, handled that I think we just want to bring back the human factor. We want to bring back the students and the purpose of the institution so that the, that the students can thrive.
1: Now, ladies, where else can folks go to find out more about your campaign?
4: Justice for LACCD. JusticeforLACCD.com. Yes justice for the number four LACCD.com
1: I want to thank Joyce Elliott and the Justice Four LACCD crew for joining us this morning we'll be back next week with more of Sunday Civics and I certainly look forward to having you back in class to take civic action have a good day